From the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, this is Road to Resilience, a podcast about facing adversity. I'm John Earl. The drug ketamine was developed as an anesthetic in the 1960s. Today, it's being used to treat patients with treatment-resistant depression, or TRD. Ketamine tends to work much faster than traditional antidepressants like Prozac, sometimes within hours instead of weeks. And while it's not a cure, it can be a godsend for patients suffering from severe depression and suicidal thoughts. In 2019, the FDA approved intranasal esketamine, a form of ketamine. It was the first truly new kind of depression drug to hit the market since Prozac did 30 years ago. The arrival of esketamine nasal spray was the culmination of two decades of research, including by the dean of our medical school, Dr. Dennis Charney, and my guest today, Dr. James Murrow. Dr. Murrow is associate professor of psychiatry and neuroscience and director of the Depression and Anxiety Center for Discovery and Treatment at the Icahn School of Medicine. In our conversation, Dr. Murrow explains why ketamine works and what it teaches us about the neurobiology of resilience. But before we get into it, full disclosure, Dr. Dennis Charney, who I mentioned before, is a named co-inventor on several issued and pending patents filed by Mount Sinai related to ketamine. Patents have been licensed by Mount Sinai to Janssen Pharmaceuticals, manufacturer of Spravato, the esketamine nasal spray. And the medical school and Dr. Charney has received and will receive future payments from Janssen. Dr. Murrow, my guest, has no financial interests related to ketamine. Okay, that's that. Here's Dr. Murrow. Enjoy. Dr. Murrow, welcome to Road to Resilience. Thanks for having me. I don't want to assume that anybody listening to this knows anything about ketamine. Okay. So can you give us a brief, what is ketamine? Yeah, absolutely. So ketamine is a drug that's been available in the United States for a long time, more than 50 years, I think. It was approved as an anesthetic, so it's used in anesthesia, often in combination with other drugs for you know, surgical procedures, things like that. It's also analgesic, which means it reduces pain. So that's what it is. It's actually unusual even as an anesthetic, just in the way it works in its pharmacology. It's considered the only medicine of that type, which affects the way people think and feel. And, and um, Would you consider it a psychedelic? It's a little bit of a gray area. Mm -hmm. I think most people would consider it not to be a classic psychedelic. When people talk about classic psychedelics, often they're talking about LSD or psilocybin, and those have a primary mechanism in terms of their chemistry of interacting with serotonin. And ketamine doesn't do that. Ketamine does cause an altered state of consciousness, but the way it does it chemically and the qualitative effect of it seems to be somewhat different from what we might call classic psychedelics. And we certainly didn't consider it a psychedelic when we started researching its effects for depression. There's a whole story to ketamine, as there is for all of these drugs. Mm -hmm. It went from being a pure analgesic to a club drug, and now in new forms as a medicine. That's Take right. us through that story. Right. Well, you mentioned club drugs. That was in parallel, and long before, I think, any ideas around it might be helpful to treat depression. In terms of depression, there was a small study, I think it was published in the year 2000, with like, I think, less than 10 patients. They reported patients with depression in the hospital, giving them an injection of ketamine, and then reporting that in the following days, at least some of those patients reported their depression got better. There was a few things that was unusual about that. One is that all drugs that we sort of came to understand could treat depression worked on basically the same systems in the brain. Ketamine didn't work anything like that. Also, antidepressants tend to take, you have to take a pill every day for a couple of weeks before it starts to have any benefit, typically. 
But the idea of giving one treatment and then the depression gets better didn't fit the mold in terms of how we think antidepressants work. I want to give people a sense also of, of the problem that we're attacking and the mm-hmm. urgency. We're talking about a population of, I found somewhere between three and five million Americans have treatment-resistant depression. And suicide yeah. is the second leading cause of death for people, Americans, age 10 to 34. That's right. So there is a big group of people who need something new. Yeah. Can you speak to that urgency? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, I mean, depression is common, it's chronic, and it can be lethal. Many patients fortunately do well with available treatments, a standard or conventional antidepressants, psychotherapy, but there is a group that's larger than we would like, estimate to be about a third of all patients that suffer from depression have some form of what we might call treatment-resistant depression. They really don't do well with standard treatments, which is exactly the backdrop of studies and the observations around ketamine to say, wow, could this be a different way to treat depression? Because if all of our antidepressant medicines kind of work the same way in the brain, have the same type of chemistry, which is broadly speaking the case before ketamine. Yeah, and there are lots of different antidepressants, Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, you name it. But you're saying they all function in pretty much the same way. That's right. And ketamine is very different. That's right. Right. That's right. Was there a moment for you, you've been working on ketamine for for how long now? More than a decade. I think I I started at Mount Sinai actually as a a trainee, a, a resident in psychiatry in 2005. I think I started working on the first ketamine study here in 06 or 07. So it's been a while. I'm wondering for you, when was the moment when you went, oh my God, like this is really powerful stuff. Like this could be a game changer for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know if there was one moment, but like sort of a series of moments. So you first, you know, we were aware, you know, the first paper that was done that I mentioned in a very small number of, of individuals showing this sort of rapid effect. But it wasn't until I think we started doing the studies here at Sinai that, that you could actually see the patients and how, you know, it's it's not a panacea and it didn't work for everybody. But many of the patients that we would treat had had many treatments and they had been depressed often for years and years. And I remember one one patient in particular who in those days, the studies we were doing was just giving a single dose. And then we would measure their depression one day after the treatment and see how it compared to basically the day before the treatment. And I remember one patient came in for that follow-up. You know, she looked like a different person. Her face was expressive. She was wearing makeup. And she said she didn't feel depressed. And it was the first time in, you know, more than 10 years. And, you know, you, you saw that. Again, not every time, but in enough to say there's something here. You mentioned very importantly that, that we're talking about a treatment and not a cure. Mm-hmm. Can you give us, though, a sense of the percentage of people who come through the studies who respond to ketamine? Yeah, so in, the, in these sort of studies we're, we're describing, sort of what, what I would consider sort of the classic studies, single dose, you know, intravenous ketamine, across the studies we were seeing response rates of about 60%. I want to compare ketamine now to some of the other drugs mm-hmm. like psilocybin, like mm-hmm. MDMA, these other drugs that have gone through that journey we described of mm-hmm. being experimented with many years ago, being illicit, and then having yeah. sort of a resurgence in medicine. Yeah. Let's just compare it, for example, to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. How, sure. how is that aimed at a different target and applied in a different way than sure. ketamine? Yeah. I mean, in terms of MDMA, the approach there really was very different from, I think, the way we were thinking about ketamine. You know, with ketamine, at least our research group and, and others tended to come at it from a very kind of, what I would say, like medical model, meaning we basically knew that ketamine affected glutamate and the NMDA receptor, and then 
you know, a lot of research was focused on understanding how that could be related to stress and depression. And the field sort of settled on a biological model accounting for why ketamine could rapidly reverse negative effects of stress and basically be antidepressant based on the way it affects brain cells. Going back to MDMA, that treatment, for example, in PTSD, where it's the farthest along, the anchor there was psychotherapy. You know, with PTSD and depression, they tend to be comorbid, but they are quite different. And of course, the nature of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, of suffering a trauma, um, there's something critical about processing the traumatic material, like a psychological-based approach. And the idea with something like MDMA is it can, in some unique and profound way, facilitate the ability of that psychological work to happen or to stick. Whereas if you look at the history of the development of ketamine for depression, um, it's been completely, has not been linked at all to psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Although I will hasten to add that in the emergence of what looks like to be very promising data about combining psychedelics with psychotherapy, many people are wondering, well, what about combining psychotherapy with ketamine? They're on very different tracks, but it seems like, if I'm understanding you correctly, there could be a merging of that track in the future. I think that's right. Yeah. I guess this is a two-part question. First, why does ketamine work? And secondly, what have we learned about depression from studying ketamine? Mm -hmm. So one of the things ketamine taught us without knowing anything about what it was doing in the brain is that someone can experience a lifting of their depression within a few hours or a day or two days which sort of broke the mold of what we thought we knew. And by the way, we never did fully understand and still don't. Well, why is it if, you, if you're depressed now and you start taking a conventional you know, antidepressant like we've been talking about, these are the serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, Prozacs, the Prozacs. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, as the doctor prescribing it, what we usually tell patients is, okay, you take it every day, don't miss a dose, and my goal would be to start to see a lifting of your symptoms, a lifting of the depressed mood, negative thinking, starting to feel better, enjoy things, hopefully as soon as about two weeks. Often it takes more like four to six weeks, and studies suggest people might be responding even up to 12 weeks and later. Of So that's like three months, right, of taking the medicine every day before they start feeling better. Right, which is too slow for somebody it's who too slow. maybe... It's too suicidal. That, that's right. That's right. And we don't fully know why. Why is the delay? Because the levels of serotonin in the brain increase within hours of the first dose. So we know it's not that. There's probably some downstream effects on broadly. We talk about neuroplasticity, basically the ability of brain cells to change and to adapt to different forms of stress. You know, the theory is that over time that change happens in the brain, and that's what's ultimately the mechanism of someone coming out of the depression. So we think that somehow ketamine is actually, it might be doing something similar to a standard antidepressant, but just much hmm. faster. This whole idea of neuroplasticity and new neural connections mm -hmm. is so exciting. I mean, it's, it's exciting, first of all, to realize that even the deep depressions can be lifted. Yes. That it's even possible. That's right. Is exciting. That's right. And then secondly, the idea that a brain can grow and change. That's right. And adapt to new habits is exciting. That's right. I found 10 years ago, you co-authored a paper about the neurobiology of resilience. Of course, this is a podcast about resilience. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if there's been any uh, movement in the last 10 years that's 
really exciting that has a lot of potential that you could share with us? It's not unrelated to our discussions about neuroplasticity. I mean, in the last 10 years, I think the field has learned a lot about what happens in the brain under stress, um, which is giving clues onto how that could be blocked, buffered, um, or, or reversed. One area of research that we've been very excited about and following up on is a very specific change in the brain that we think we could actually harness to think about a new type of treatment, a medication treatment actually. There's, we know a lot about boosting stress resilience in terms of behavioral and psychological things, even basic things like exercise. So important for resilience to stress. More and more studies show that. But what about medicines that could basically take advantage of what we know about how stress affects the brain or how the brain is resilient to stress? So I'll just give you one example of that. One of the early observations was you might think if you have mice that show depression after stress and then some that don't, you might think that if you looked at the changes in the brain, you can look at like gene expression or these measures of basically how cells are responding. Cells are always responding to their environment by increasing proteins or genes and other things. And you could just, you could just sort of count up, well, how many genes, how many cells are, are like activated. It's, it's actually the resilient mice that have more changes in their brain, which you might think. Yeah, you think of resilience as like firm. And exactly. Tough. You don't think of resilience exactly flexible exactly we're talking in the in the in the plane of neuroscience mm -hmm. and of chemicals in the brain but i'm wondering what your work has taught you about human resilience and when you go out and live your life in the world has it all affected how you think about resilience on that plane you know a lot of the things that we study or try to understand about how is the brain responding to stress you know short of you know again i gave you an example of maybe in the future engineering specific medicines that could treat people that have disorders that result from like some type of lack of resilience for, for a better word, you know, that develop a depression. And, and so it's important because sometimes there's a, a connotation that if someone develops depression or PTSD, I say they're not resilient, like there's something wrong with them. So I'm always quick to, it's not resilience is just, again, from a scientific perspective, it's look, everyone has different brains, different bodies, different minds. Some respond um, more adaptively than others to stress. We don't know why, and it's probably, it's nobody's fault if they don't, right? But what can we learn about the brains that do really well under stress <laughs> to help the people whose brains don't? But, you know, outside of the world of brain chemistry and things like that, you know, there's more and more studies that just tell us the most basic things are really important for coping with stress and being resilient to stress. I mentioned exercise. One of the ones in addition that comes up over and over is social support social network. And there's all kinds of studies, you know, you can count the size of people's social networks now, of course, right? And so you can link these things. And then with COVID and the pandemic, when there was this huge overlay of stress, like a blanket over the whole world, over the population, it affects everyone differently. But it was sort of stress across the board was increased. And then researchers, epidemiologists trying to figure out, well, who, who's coping better? Again, what can we learn from this, right? People with richer social networks tend to do better. So, you know, if I'm sitting there and it's Friday at six o'clock and I just feel like turn on the TV, I think maybe I should call my friend that I haven't talked to in a while, right? Because, you know, you put in that effort. It's, it's, um, sociality is like, uh, it's like plants. You have to water them, but then they give back. So, you know, little things like that. And I try to tell my patients too, you know, particularly, when you're depressed and you don't feel like it, that's when you have to put in the extra effort because you're going to need those people. 
and we're social creatures. So I think, you know, reminding us the importance of social relationships, tending them, you know, putting in the energy because it, it is energy. Um, and, uh, you know, exercise and eat right and all that if you can, but easier said than done. Would you say because of the pandemic, there's more urgency behind your work or behind the work of treating people with depression? I would say yes. I mean, again, before the pandemic, we knew that depression was one of the most um, biggest causes of disability of any medical illness worldwide. You know, 800,000 suicides worldwide a year. So it was a major problem before. And I think with the experience of COVID in the last year, it's just brought that that a point home as well. So th there's definitely a sense of urgency in our lab, the research staff, you know, everyone that makes all this happen, you know, coordinates with referring doctors, reaches out to patients, trying to get uh, the research done to find new treatments and also to get people that need care before, during, or after a research study or having nothing to do with research into treatment. And whether that's with you know, conventional antidepressants, psychotherapy, often we would suggest a combination, depending on how severe. And then for more severe treatment refractory cases, some of these other things like ketamine or some of uh, some additional treatments, you know, we're seeing demand up across the board for all those things. Flexibility is another thread I kind of want uh -huh. to pull on. Uh -huh. This We were talking about neuroplasticity a bit earlier. Yes. And I wonder if there are also ways to kind of encourage one's own flexibility or neuroplasticity outside of a laboratory setting? Well, you know, this, this is a very active area of research and interest. Um, there's a lot of work being done in, you know, how do we stave off, you know, age-related cognitive problems, Alzheimer's, things like that. So there's many apps now available. And there's, I mean, there is data that by engaging in certain activities, we can um, improve some of our, our functions. And the basic stuff we, we, we've all learned for a long time, like, you know, read, right? Try to read more than you're watching TV. Keep the, you know, keep the mind active. That, that all still holds true. I don't think we have enough data to say whether there are, are specific um, interventions that are better than others. But I think the, the sort of common things that, again, we probably all kind of are aware of about keeping active, doing your your crossword puzzles and your, your in the newspaper things like that. I think there's a real that's based on something. Um, you know, flexibility is interesting. That there's a whole domain of what we would call cognitive functioning, and you can break it into well, there's memory, language, these here these things like executive function. But what does flexibility mean? And there's lots of different definitions, but it actually seems to be really really important for mental health. And I don't think there are that many active studies or areas of investigation that are really trying to figure out what treatments can actually just increase flexibility in thinking. There are definitely some, and like I say, there's some apps, but it's a, it's a form of cognitive functioning that more and more seem like it's very important. Interestingly, going back to the psychedelics, I saw someone giving a talk who said that, what's the psychedelic drug doing that's allowing the therapy to work? And the suggestion was it's increasing psychological flexibility. And so I think there's really something to that. And we're learning more and more about how that works in the brain. You can measure sort of brain states by looking at small changes in blood flow. And there's some indication that in, in some of these stress-related problems we're talking about, like depression, the brain is less easily transitions between different states. And if you talk to patients with depression, they'll talk about feeling stuck. They'll also talk about 
things like rumination or repetitive negative thinking. There's this sort of stuck, <laughs> keeps coming up when you talk to people. And so I think part of what I'm going to be trying to think about more, and I, and I think many others are too, is whether it's a medication or a psychotherapy approach, how do we get people to practice increasing flexibility? Is it is it trying to get them to think about different things in a sequence more quickly? So I, I think there's a lot to that. And that's I think that's a really exciting area of research um, in the future. There's a lot left to be learned. Yes, that's that is most You're certainly true. You're going to be true. busy for a yes, long time. That's right. There's no. That's right. No. 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 No shortage of work to do. As we come to a close, um, I was wondering if you could speak to somebody who maybe themselves is experiencing severe depression or know somebody who is. Yeah. And maybe give them some idea of of where they might be able to go with that. So, I mean, the first thing I would say is if you're experiencing depression, help's available. Get help. You know, a lot, it sounds maybe simple, but, you know, talk to your doctor. You know, there are things online and, and sometimes if, if someone hasn't had depression before, they just don't know about it, they may not know that's what they're experiencing, but they feel like something is wrong. They're just not feeling themselves. Not, I mean, everyone has an off day, but if it's day after day, week after week, then yeah, see your doctor because most forms of depression can be successfully treated. And I, I'm, I always hasten to add that because we tend to study and try to understand and try to develop treatments for the individuals that have a more difficult, chronic, even what we, we would call treatment-resistant course, but most people can respond well to psychotherapy or the available treatment. So if you're depressed, you know, don't be afraid to bring it up with your doctor, tell your family, you know, if you need help, because for the vast majority of people, help is out there and it, it, it makes a big difference. Thank you, Dr. Murrow. You're welcome. Thank you. Dr. James Murrow is Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroscience and Director of the Depression and Anxiety Center for Discovery and Treatment at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. To view transcripts, photos, and links to all of our episodes, check out our website, mountsinai.org slash podcasts. Road to Resilience is a production of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's made by me, John Earl, Nikki Cheatham, and our executive producer, Lucia Lee. From all of us here, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.